The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and today I'm joined by Bruce Fink. We'll be talking about psychoanalysis and the work of Jacques Lacan. As always, you can listen to PTO on SoundCloud, iTunes and ACAS. And you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Poll Theory Other. If you've been enjoying PTO, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. And if you really like the show, please think about supporting it via Patreon You can become a supporter for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2, and by becoming a patron you'll get access to extended versions of PTO episodes. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com poll theory other. Before we get to today's interview, here's a brief snippet from the second episode of Red Hacks, a series of conversations about journalism in the neoliberal world hosted by Joanna Ramiro. Joanna spoke to campaigning photojournalist Jess Hurd, and you can hear the full interview this Thursday. a lot of time just going out and, uh, and photographing. I documented a uh, traveller site at the back of college. Uh, there was quite a lot of tension. Uh, anything that was nicked was blamed on the travellers and so on. Um, and But went in and interviewed the kids and talked about uh, what... Uh, what was happening to them and the racism they were experiencing at school uh, through the council um, and um, and the policing, uh, and and that was that was really what also uh, helped me in in terms of uh, finding a path through to photojournalism. Really, that you could get actually get access and go in and tell people's stories, help assist people tell their own stories. Actually, uh, I did recorded interviews with all the kids, so you could. Uh, see their big portraits on the wall and listen to their and listen to their interviews their words um, and I think that's 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 really uh, that's a really p- still a powerful way uh, to to break the news out so An amusing and perfectly self-conscious charlatan. Those are the words that Noam Chomsky reportedly once used to describe the French psychoanalyst and theorist Jacques Lacan. It's an opinion that I once had some sympathy for, but no longer do, and it's a perspective that today's guest, Bruce Fink, is certainly unlikely to agree with. Bruce is a practicing Lacanian psychoanalyst and analytics supervisor. He's a member of the École de la Cause Freudienne in Paris and a board member of the Pittsburgh Psychoanalytic Centre. He's translated several of Lacan's works into English and is the author of numerous books on Lacan. 
Our conversation was primarily focused on his book, The Lacanian Subject, A Clinical Introduction to Lacanian Psychoanalysis. Typically on the left, Lacan is discussed more in terms of the political significance of Lacanian theory and the way in which his work has been taken up in the Marxist tradition. Instead, our conversation was centred on the clinical value of Lacan's work. In the extended version of today's interview, Bruce is rather critical of the medicalisation of the treatment of depression and anxiety. However, neither Bruce nor I would want to encourage anyone to stop taking medication without consulting with their doctor. And of course, ceasing to take medication abruptly can be very dangerous. I began the interview by asking Bruce why it is that, given that people suffering from depression and anxiety commonly feel that they strongly desire to get better, Lacan argues, rather counterintuitively, that despite appearances, at some level the patient does not, in fact, want to get well. Oh, well, it's uh, rather complicated and includes uh, several different levels, but... um the idea is based on the existence of the unconscious uh, such that while consciously um, many patients uh, want to get well, want to get better, want to change, at another level, at the level of the unconscious, we can say that they don't, um, that um, uh, there's a resistance to changing, which is perhaps why they have been in the situation that they find themselves in for often a very long period of time, and that there is a very strong resistance to knowing what it is that is keeping them in the situation that they're in, what is, for example, knowing what is making them anxious, they really don't want to know about that. And so they come in and they say, you know, this is ruining my life. I really want this to change. And then you start asking them about what makes them anxious and they don't want to talk about it. Or you ask them about, um, they know full well perhaps when they come to see you that you're a psychoanalyst and you're going to want to talk about their past and you're going to want to talk about their dreams and their fantasies. And they don't want to talk about the past. They don't want to uh, go into certain things. They don't want to, you know, some, they'll have a whole variety of excuses at times. You know, I don't want to blame all of my problems on my family. That's like a classic one, um, which is a way of saying, um, you know, uh, probably uh, my mother and father or, you know, other people in my family have something to do with my being so anxious. But, um, you know, I've, uh, you know, especially in America, you know, you're not supposed to, you're supposed to take full responsibility for yourself. And, you know, nothing is anybody else's fault, of course. And um, so, uh, or everything is everybody else's fault, but that's a different, uh, uh, usually a different diagnosis for a different uh, set of people uh, who think in that way. But, um, uh, and so certain things become sort of um, off limits. Uh, they don't want to discuss them, and it takes them, in many cases, a long time to um, to get around to discussing things that um, are very important to them getting better. Some I've had patients who have even contested the idea, even though they came to me knowing full well I was an analyst, that talking about the past was going to get them anywhere. Uh, that talking about dreams was going to have any impact on their symptoms and, and so on. So uh, I, I think um, I've said that to, to my analyst in the past, actually. Right. <laughs> in uh, in you know, moments I've of been, frustration, you know. R- 
right. I think we probably all have, you know, or, you know, uh, your analyst keeps asking you about daydreams or fantasies of one kind or another. And you just say, oh, uh, it's the same ones over and over again. I don't want to go into them again, right? Because maybe they're embarrassing or they're humiliating or you're ashamed of them for one reason or another. And But what we fail to realize usually as patients is that there are slight variations in many cases. There are little details that are presented in certain fantasies and not in others. And all of these things can be keys to uh, unraveling symptoms. So, so, so once again, the, the, you know, the simplest answer is that there's a conflict between the conscious will to get better and the unconscious will to uh, not uh, touch on certain things that are there. Another level of, of the question is still related to the unconscious, but it's more at what Freud would call the economic level, the level of satisfaction, and what Lacan calls the level of jouissance, which is that even as we complain about our symptoms, our anxiety, uh, or whatever else it may be, uh, there's a certain kind of enjoyment that we get out of them. It's counterintuitive. We say we don't enjoy it. We say we hate it. We say it's the worst thing in the world. And yet we cling to it um, such that when we perceive, for example, or we start to get the impression in our own analysis that what we're talking about, uh, you know, during a certain series of sessions is starting to shake something up, that's often the time when patients leave analysis. It's often at that very moment that they say nothing's happening. And, you know, sometimes a week or two later or sometimes even just two days later, they come back and they say, you know, it becomes quite clear that basically in the very next one, two, three sessions, something very important gets said that was very hard for them to reckon with, to uh, to dredge up, so to speak, or to bring out in speech. And... Um, so, you know, there's, uh, there's a certain resistance that um, the patient is fighting and that we are fighting. And um, so, you know, that, anyway, that's uh, so at least two levels of the question. Hmm. Do you ever encounter patients who right from the get-go are, are very happy to begin talking about the past? Uh, and, and if so, what does that tend to denote for you in terms of their, their analysis? Um, uh, not, it doesn't necessarily denote much, and sometimes there are people who are very happy to talk about the past, and but it, often it's a very abstract project for them. Um, it's uh, the invitation to talk about the past is is fine with them, except when suddenly the past no longer takes the form that they had been expecting it to take, uh, that in some sense they, they thought of it as a sort of a fun biologic, uh, biological, <laughs> no, biographical sketch and um, uh, of their lives. And then it turns out that there are things that they had forgotten about um, or hadn't thought about in a really long time that suddenly become quite troubling. So the, the the willingness or the lack of willingness uh, to discuss the past uh, right from the outset doesn't signify a whole heck of a lot. Um, 
but uh, I, my working assumption is, you know, things will bog down at a certain point such that people don't want to uh, talk about certain aspects of the past because of what they uh, bring up. Um, Lacan has this great line in a seminar that I just finished translating, Seminar 6, Desire and Its Interpretation, and he says uh, there, um, everything about the unconscious, everything related to the unconscious is quickly forgotten. And so there are so many things um, about our past that we we try to forget as quickly as we can. Um, things that, uh, you know, people say, oh, yes, well, I dimly remember something or other, but I haven't thought about it in 30 years. Um, we put those things out of mind. We act like they're not part of us, like they have no effect on us. And in fact, those things are, uh, anal psychoanalysis would say, those are the things that are actually pulling the strings. That's what's running your life. Um, so. You mentioned that people in analysis will experience sort of frustration about re-going over, over old ground. And I suppose that relates to the idea that, I forget if it's Lacan or, or, or Freud who says this, but that, that symptoms are, are over-determined, um, that there's not, that there's a kind of uh, a reinforcing uh, effect whereby the symptom may initially be caused by one thing, but then it becomes reinforced by a bunch of other things as well. Is, is that correct? Right, sure. And that even its formation at the outset may already be overdetermined. There may be several things that go together into the first formation and then um, other meanings become attached to it. So if you think of the case of a phobia, um, uh, it uh, comes into being for a complex set of reasons. Uh, but then often there are other things, um, if, uh, for example, if it began in childhood, there are other things that uh, become attached to it as time goes on. And so we have to peel away layer after layer after layer and explore the symptom from many different angles. And it's true, it's an exhausting process, uh, both for the patient and for the analyst. And um, and yet, uh, in my experience, there's no getting around it. So, um, you know, it's an exercise in persistence on both of our parts. And um, and yet, of course, the, the patient um, uh, understandably becomes very frustrated with the process because... Um, uh, yes, I've already talked about that. Yes, you know, we've already gone into that. Yeah, but we've missed something. Obviously, if the problem is still there, um, there's more to be said about it. That's our working uh, uh, hypothesis anyway in analysis. And, of course, a lot of other uh, approaches to psychotherapy would uh, dispute that. But um, uh, in my 30-some years at this point of analytic practice, it's um, persistence really pays off. And uh, um, uh, but uh, again, it's um, you know it requires uh, a lot of uh, um, activity on the analyst part to keep encouraging the patient when uh, his or her own energy in that direction fails or f flags to uh, to keep encouraging them to go further and further into things. In terms of, of why people go into into therapy, am I right in thinking that your argument would be that um, 
people do go into therapy because of, of the suffering that they're experiencing. But the solution people are actually looking for in the initial stages of therapy is to experience more of the the kind of secondary sort of perverse kind of enjoyment uh, from the symptom. And that the reason sometimes people go into therapy is because that has started to, to sort of decline. Well, that's certainly uh, right. It, it, you know, we can talk about it as a, a crisis of satisfaction or a jouissance crisis, um, and it can present itself in um, in different ways. One could be that the 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 compensations that I was getting from life, the the whatever kind of enjoyments that I was managing to eke out in life. Uh, have suddenly stopped working for one reason or another, or there's been a serious worsening of the symptom that I was uh, suffering from already, um, and um, uh, such that perhaps the um, the conflict between the type of enjoyment I'm getting from it and the way it's ruining my life in a very concrete here and now kind of way, destroying my relationships with people, destroy, ruining, you know, making me fail completely at my job, getting me fired, um, uh, um, uh, that kind of. Um, problem has become so important that uh, I finally contact somebody, finally figure I have to do something. There are a number of um, different ways that people come to analysis and reasons that they come into analysis. And um, but there's almost always a crisis of some kind if the work is really going to get underway. And it's important that there be a kind of crisis because it's the, it's the crisis itself that we could say opens people up to the effect of the unconscious. Because no matter how much we say to ourselves, oh, we're fascinated by the unconscious and we'd love to get to know our unconscious, the fact is that as soon as you start getting anywhere close to it, our our first tendency really is to run the other way. And even those people, uh, myself included, when I was in an analysis, I, I, I had no problem remembering dreams. Um, and yet what we tend to do with dreams rather spontaneously in analysis is we talk about them and then we avoid any of the parts that uh, we find a little dodgy or a little bit um, disturbing and we don't even notice that we are willing to associate to certain parts of the dream but not other parts. And so again, the, uh, the attempt to avoid or evade the unconscious um, right, we think that because we're talking about a dream, therefore we're talking directly about the unconscious. But you know, that's that's just a, a small part of it. After that, you have to um, really go into the interpretation of the dream, and most people don't want to. It's very easy to content yourself with a very um, uh, superficial interpretation of a dream and relate it to your everyday life and the struggles that are going on now and not really fully associate to it and bring out its connections with your past and with some of the more problematic or unseemly things perhaps in your life. Um, so. 
on Lac- Lac- Lacan's uh, writing style, uh, I, d- I don't know if you if you're aware of it, but there's a there's an American philosophy podcast called The Partially Examined Life, and they did an episode on, on Lacan. And um, for, for for the episode, they re- they read I think a, a couple of your books, and I think they read um, you know some some of Lacan's work, and. Um, I was listening to this. Um, it was a few years ago now, but um, in in the beginning of the the introduction, the, the, there's I think there's three three guys talking talking about about the experience of of engaging with this work, and one of them was saying, um, you know, typically I I really like to just go to the source. I don't like to read secondary literature, and you know, I was saying to to you guys, oh, you know, let's just let's just read Lacan because I'm you know I'm a big advocate for just reading reading the damn stuff that that people that people write. Um, and I, and then he says, you know, and I thought, well, how how bad can it be? Um, and then there's a sort of comic pause, and and then he says, well, it turns out it can be pretty fucking bad, um, you know. So, so it's you know, there, there is this thing of, of of Lacan being seen as incredibly impenetrable, deliberately sort of obscurantist in in the way that he writes, and you know, that's very different from the experience of reading your work, which is you know, is, is very very clear and accessible. Um, why why did Lacan write in this uh, in this very difficult way? Um, you know, whatever I say will be primarily a hypothesis about it because we don't have him to tell us exactly. And, um, he probably wouldn't tell us even if you did ask him the question directly. Um, the one thing, the one comment I think that he, uh, he once made about it was that, um, Clarity is not always a virtue when you consider how clear Freud wrote and yet how uh, easily misunderstood his work was. And um, uh, now we could say that that's perhaps a rationalization or a sort of ex post facto uh, justification for Lacan's own difficult writing style. but there may be some truth to it as well. I think that he did, uh, at least at some points, there's a certain amount of deliberate difficulty that he provides where he engages in a kind of grammatical origami where something that in a seminar of his, he might have stated um, quite simply, and we know that because a lot of the seminars have been available in pirate versions for a very long time, and now many of them are coming out in a published version. But many of the same things that we find in his written work were said far more directly and clearly in his seminars. So there does seem to be some deliberate attempt to make things more complex. Um, And when I talk about origami, in other words, a way that he might have stated something very simply in a seminar, the sentences are then all broken up. The grammar is becomes kind of involuted and convoluted. And um, the translator's task and even the reader's task is to lay out the sentence and sort of put it back together the way it might have been uh, at an earlier stage of its development. Um, uh, so there's, there's that aspect and, um, uh, there's also, of course, uh, far more literary references that Lacan then adds in. No, j- just to keep in mind, a lot of the writings, for example, in the, the huge volume called the Acre, 
a number of them grew very directly out of a particular seminar he was giving one year. And so, you know, he had in front of him all of his notes. He had the transcriptions of the seminars that were being made at the time. And he boiled uh, uh, much of the material there often down into uh, a 30-page text or a 50-page text, whereas it started out as, let's say, a 600-page seminar. Um, as he does so, uh, obviously the conceptual uh, component becomes very condensed, and then he often adds in more literary and philosophical references. Um, he uh, uses terminology that is often far more um, abstract and obscure than he had uh, in the course of the seminar. He had an amazing vocabulary, um, and uh, you know, as he wrote and rewrote um, often ten times each individual text, he would add in um, uh, certain terms from psychiatry, from law, from uh, mathematics, logic, and so on. Uh, and um, certainly not with the explicit design to make the reader's task easier, um, but uh, perhaps with an eye to posterity, with an eye to uh, proving his sort of intellectual bona fides, and um, in a um, perhaps somewhat typically French and somewhat European um, intellectual context. You know, when you sent me this question, uh, you were kind enough to send me some of these questions uh, a couple of days ago, and I had a chance to think about it, about them. And, and this one in particular just reminded me of... Um, you know, what was my experience like reading Heidegger's Being in Time? Or what was my experience like reading Sartre's Being in Nothingness? And frankly, I don't think that Lacan's work, at least certain of the texts, um, uh, uh, that certain of the texts are no more difficult than reading uh, Heidegger or Sartre. Some of them are even easier, direction of the treatment or function and field of speech and language. Um, there's a, a one particular curious facet of Lacan's work, which is that often a, a specific paper will begin with two or three pages of impenetrable prose, and then after that it gets easier. And it's as if Lacan uh, was saying, you know, um, stay away, or if you're not a consummate enough intellectual to get through these first few pages, you don't deserve to read the rest. <laughs> and so, so there's a certain amount of snobism there, right, of snobbery, and there's uh, a certain effete intellectual uh, quality to it. But um, uh, really, to, to my way of thinking, uh, Lacan does fit in with a certain tradition of... Um, difficult writers. He's also a dialectical thinker, and so uh, like Hegel, um, there are uh, difficulties in uh, following his way of thinking, owing to this constantly unfolding dialectic. Uh, and I would add one further element, at least, which is that um, Lacan had to my mind anyway, a certain 
you could say it's a paranoia about, or a certain reluctance to set anything about his thought down in stone. Uh, that he wanted to keep uh, his uh, his work a kind of open system, and he was constantly tinkering with it, constantly adding to and changing the meaning of certain terms like object A or the other with a capital O, uh, or jouissance, or the subject. Um, and these things all become uh, concepts that are accretive, that they have layer upon layer of, and layer of commentary that he uh, made over the course of his very long teaching career about these terms. And um, so I think there's perhaps something in his writing, too, which one of the things we, or I grapple with anyway, is, you know, what exactly is his thesis here, right? What exactly is he saying about obsession, about hysteria, about psychosis, about jouissance, about this or that? And it, it's often rather slippery. And there's a whole series of things that he's saying, and you can't codify. That's why I think the idea of a dictionary or an encyclopedia of Lacan's work, you know, that would somehow formalize what each term means is, is very difficult and perhaps, you know, um, doomed to failure type project. Um, uh, and so um, I think he very much wanted uh, to encourage people to read Freud as uh, which is not the way that they tended to read it. Uh, they tended to read Freud as um, Freud in 1938, at the end of his life, these are his definitive re uh, reflections on such and such a topic. And Lacan said, well, no, I mean, Freud reflected on this already starting in 1900, and then again, uh, you know, with the revisions of this idea in 1910, and then again in the 20s and so on. So Lacan preferred to look at Freud, and I think probably other thinkers as well, as what he wanted to understand were, were the twists and turns in their own conceptual evolution. Uh, and, um, and I think he wanted to be seen the same way, and he wanted each uh, stage or step of his work uh, to be... Um, taken seriously and not as though it had been um, surpassed or, let's say, superseded, rather, by his later work. So um, um, all of those things, I think, combine to uh, making the reader's task a difficult one. I myself, I recall when I was uh, first reading the seminars in the 80s, I had the sense, I didn't yet know the French ex, uh, expression, it's called fuite en avant, which is this kind of thing where you keep kicking the ball down the field to the next seminar. In other words, I didn't really answer the question that I took up, you know, what is desire in this seminar, but I will answer it in my next seminar. Anxiety, you thought, you know, we had sort of gotten a real good handle on what it means in seminar 10, but we'll talk about it more in seminar 11 and 12 and 13 and 14. And so there's a certain deferral, a constant deferral of understanding, which is actually very good practice for somebody who wants to work in the field of psychoanalysis, because 
if you conclude that you have really understood something about your patient, you, you almost always find a week later or a month later or a year later that actually, you know, what you had concluded was false or it was only partial, only part of the truth. And I would say that the the kind of discipline or practice necessary for reading Lacan is much the same as the kind of discipline or practice necessary for analytic work. Um, and I think you had mentioned in one of your questions something that I had never heard of that I had to look up. I think it was called cognitive analytic therapy. Is that it? Yes. Yeah. Right. Which, again, seems to, if I understood it correctly, the little bit that I read about it, um, um it seems to rely quite a bit on uh, a pr on provisional understandings uh, in a way that in psychoanalysis we would hope not to, right? That there would be a provisional understanding of something that would net on the analyst part perhaps that would never be brought to the analysis's uh, attention, um, uh, but that would be perhaps um, used as a basis for asking further questions by the analyst. Uh, but not necessarily as the basis for making interpretations and certainly not early on in the analytic work. Um, so again, in the analytic work, um, let's say that the patient's unconscious requires a constant deferral of understanding on the analyst's part and on the analyzand's part as well, insofar as the analyzand is trying to piece together things for himself or herself. Um, but uh, the deferral of understanding is also important in the way um, or the kind of caution that uh, the analyst adopts in interpreting as well so as not to somehow too quickly jump to a conclusion that could set something in stone. And as a clinician myself, I, I, I jokingly say to many people that I'm a mental health practitioner of last resort because often when people come to see a Lacanian, it's because they've already been to see everybody else under the sun and not necessarily having any faith in a Lacanian approach. They're just desperate to try something else uh, to, to get somewhere that they haven't gotten. And um, I often have uh, patients who come to me after having been in therapies of all different kinds and uh, even analyses of various different kinds and uh, we'll get to a certain question and they'll say to me, which seems to me to be a very complex question, and we'll say, my prior analyst told me that I was this or I was that. And, and uh, you know, I just listen, and, but, you know, the conclusion is they told me that and it hasn't changed anything. So, uh, you know, why would you make certain kinds of interpretations providing certain kinds of uh, overly quick and easy uh, understandings to a patient if that's simply going to lead to uh, stopping them from going any further, right? Because as, as, uh, as Lacan puts it, and certainly the Lacanians repeat this quite a lot, understanding satisfies. At least at a certain level, if you explain to a patient why he or she is having a certain kind of symptom or a problem or... Uh, difficulty in life, oftentimes that feels good. 
It gives them something to latch on to. And uh, in a time of crisis, it could be important to provide such an understanding. But in general, uh, such understandings actually put a stop to the analytic process. And so there is a kind of constant deferral um, uh, uh, of understanding that has to occur, it seems to me, uh, for both analyzand and uh, analysts. And, and that, I think, is one of the things that distinguishes Lacanian analysis a great deal from other forms of analysis where there is no suspiciousness or, let's say, understanding does not uh, seem to be suspect to uh, most analysts um, in any way. Understanding is fabulous. Uh, it's great if the anal- if, you know, analysts who think they understand are not at all discouraged from believing that, first of all, and communicating what they believe they have understood to their patients. Whereas in Lacanian work, um, uh, there is um, certainly a, a suspicion of understanding in the sense that um, you know, Lacan doesn't believe that understanding has ever cured anyone. Um, and uh, he says, you know, what we have to do is uh, we have to bring what is unconscious to speech and that at speech to another person. And that's what's curative. Um, it's not because you think you have some brilliant understanding of your problem that it goes away. Um, so um, that's perhaps more than you wanted to hear about Lacan's writing style. But no, that, no, no. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's good. I mean, I was I was thinking about my um, about my own experience of uh, analysis, and um, I've had a a, a few analysts you know i'm currently seeing a, a lacanian my previous therapists weren't weren't lacanians and um i think the way i experienced that i mean i think you know i i was somebody who uh was at least to my own mind quite open about about talking about the past um n- you know fairly happy to, to pin <laughs> responsibility for things on, on on certain people but um i think part of what i've experienced is well certainly with with uh you know sort of therapy the first time around with with non-lacanians was that the the causes were sort of of, of symptomatic behavior i suppose were seen as sort of fairly obvious and they seemed fairly obvious to me um and then there was a sort of a swift moving on to dealing with the symptoms in a in a way which seems to be primarily about kind of sort of shoring up you know my own sort of self sense of self self-worth and and sort of dealing with my my insecurities um and to me it's very striking with with the analysis that I'm doing now that there is there is no um you know a, a attempt to to sort of make me feel better in 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 the uh, in the way that we 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 typically understand in terms of you know saying oh no you're not you're not you're not this bad person you're not like that you you're like this you know kind right. of, kind of right. thing which is obviously right. obviously often right. what we what we get from from friends as well right sure um just just one thing on the, on the writing style um so i mean you you, you mentioned that um you know you would situate lacan in terms of 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 other continental theory which is which is often often quite difficult so so would you be more inclined to think that resistance to to uh, taking Lacan seriously is more related to the, that kind of anglophone resistance to to continental theory in, in general um, part of it perhaps because certainly in the um, French Spanish Italian uh, 
Portuguese-speaking world, there seems to be no such resistance to Lacan's work. There, you don't hear those same kind of comments very often um, uh, about Lacan's writing. Um, I'm sure people have a lot of trouble with it. I've heard many misunderstandings of his work from people who speak those languages as well. It's not like it's uh, you know crystal clear for them, but I think um, there is um, a greater willingness to uh, work with uh, quite difficult authors, and there isn't a kind of refusal of a certain... Um, intellectualism, so to speak, or uh, intellectual di conceptual difficulty, um, even linguistic difficulty. You know, in the U.S., we tend to say, you know, well, um, if somebody can't say something clearly, it isn't worth saying or something like that. Well, I think, you know, Europeans tend not to have that same um, perspective. The other thing I, I actually I did mean to mention about this, and it, your question raises it as a kind of curious point, I myself find reading uh, Melanie Klein extremely difficult, uh, you know, partly because she, at least obviously at some level, uh, especially in her early work, thought more in German than she did in English, but wrote in English, uh, if I'm not mistaken, um, at least some of the things that I've read. But uh, her con I find her writing style and her con concepts very difficult to grasp, and Bion uh, as well. Now, and Bion, I believe, was uh, a native English speaker. And curiously enough, Klein and Bion have become all the rage uh, in America, and to some degree, I believe, in England as well, and so even in the English-speaking universe, two very difficult theorists have um, become incredibly uh, well, uh, widely read, uh, even among analysts who um, you know, don't necessarily have that European tradition of reading difficult philosophy and so on. Um, and I don't know what that... Um, is owing to, is it that Klein and Beyond's work have been presented by people who are much clearer writers than they themselves were, uh, or is it somehow that um, they speak to, to the practitioners in the English-speaking world in a way that Lacan doesn't? Um, uh, that's an open question for me because I just find them quite impenetrable, whereas I find Lacan much, uh, much uh, easier. So, um, uh, yeah, um, certainly in a, you know in America, I think as you mentioned, you know, there's a, a certain anti-intellectual type of uh, most dominant that's uh, kind of dominant in, in the culture. Um, and, uh, you know, with notable exceptions, but overall, the Americans were the ones who, um, against Freud's wishes, said that um, all analysts had to be medical practitioners. Uh, they wanted to situate it within the sciences. And the ideal in science, of course, is a very clear, unequivocal writing style, clear, unequivocal concepts, and so on. And the attempt to turn psychoanalysis, 
uh, the training of psychoanalysts into a kind of very straightforward course of study lasting four years, no more, and professionalize it as though uh, Lacan ironizes at a certain point as though it were a profession like dentistry. And uh, whereas obviously the training of analysts is a long and unwieldy process without um, uh, that I, I would say is very hard to uh, quantify or um, legislate in any way. So um, there is a certain conflict of mentalities anyway uh, between a kind of typical American sort of it should be fast and clean, uh, straightforward, uh, the, you know, the training and therefore the written work as well. And, uh, uh, and then there's the messiness of the mind that I think is reflected in Lacan's writing and reflected in a lot of European analytic work. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.